Welcome to the Community Church Podcast. This is the second week of our series called Wallet, Keys, Armor. This week, Pastor Mike will be teaching from Ephesians 6, verses 10 through 14. If you'd like to take notes, there's a link for that in the show notes. Thanks for joining us, and without further ado, here's Pastor Mike. How many of you know about the great alien invasion of 1938? Now, you might laugh about that and say, well, actually, I'll share things. I'm not making anything up. Uh, it all happened on the evening of October 30th, 1938. Uh, a, the first alien ship landed in a field in a quiet farm town in New Jersey called Grover's Mill. Now, numerous people, ranging from professors to reporters to first responders, rushed to the field, thinking that they would find the remains of a meteor shower. However, they were surprised to find a large metal, metal cylinder in the middle of the open field, uh, you know, still steaming from the entry into the atmosphere. And as they were there walking around the crash site, the cylinder began to open, and a terrifying attack of alien violence unfolded. Online, uh, on-site reporter Carr Phillips broadcast this chilling report. These are his words from CBS Airwaves. He said, good heavens, something is wriggling out of the shadow like a gray snake. Now here's another and another and another one. I can't see the whole body now, but it's, it's large. It's as large as a bear. It glistens like wet leather. It, but that face, it, ladies and gentlemen, it's indescribable. I can hear, hardly force myself to keep looking at it. It's so awful. The eyes are black and gleam like a serpent. The mouth is kind of V-shaped with saliva drop, dripping from its rimless lips that seem to quiver and pulsate. What's that? There's a jet of flame springing up from the alien, and it leaps right toward the advancing men. It strikes them head on. Good Lord, they're, they're turning into flame. Now the whole field's caught fire, the woods, the barns, the gas tanks of the automobiles. It's spreading everywhere. It's coming my way. And at this point, his voice went out followed by the eerie static of silence on the radio. Five seconds later, a new reporter picked up the report and announced that aliens had indeed landed on the alien coast. The National Guard had been called in. Bells began to warn people to, in New York City, to warn people to evacuate the city. The Secretary of the Interior came on the radio and urged all Americans to join the fight to stand for the preservation of the supremacy of humanity on this earth. And then came word of alien landings also in Chicago and St. Louis, and, and there was panic in the street. Thousands of people fled New York City. People took refuge in churches. Pregnant women went into labor early. People committed suicide. There was looting in the streets. People took out their guns and prepared for the final stand of humanity. Now, you might be listening and saying, there really wasn't an alien invasion. That didn't happen. Well, there wasn't an alien invasion, but a lot of people believe that there was. And everything else in the story actually did happen. You see, it was 1938, and it was a very stressful time in America. You had the Great Depression was still going on. You had all kinds of news reports of pending war in Europe, and people was, were unsure of what was going to happen. They were terrified of the possibility of war. A large hurricane had just hit the northeastern coast, the largest in history, 700 people were killed, 60,000 people were left homeless. The news was worrisome. And into that, enter a man named Orson Welles. He was an actor, 
He was the director of the Mercury Theater on Air. It was a new radio program on CBS, and it was having a hard time getting traction. And so he decided to get traction, to gain audience, he had to do something really dramatic, something out of the box. So he brought the rights to H.G. Wells' book, The War of the Worlds, and he had it rewritten into a one-hour radio drama that featured an alien attack in current-day New Jersey. Now, the show started with a welcome and with an introduction saying that it was a fictional story. But then after that introduction, it all went into this very realistic drama that featured uh, realistic run running news reports and, and reporters and interviews. And, and even at one point, someone who had an actor who had a voice like President Roosevelt came out and spoke and addressed the nation. Now, the people who had uh, been listening from the very beginning and heard the introduction knew it was a fictional story. But there were a lot of people that weren't listening right at 8 o'clock when it started. And so if they came in 5 or 10 or 15 minutes late, they came in and it sounded like a very realistic news report. It sounded like these things were happening. It was really President Roosevelt who was speaking to the nation. And the result is that people believed it. There was true panic. You know, countless people called the police. People fled their churches. They literally left the cities that were under attack. They thought were under attack. Miscarriages happened. Suicides were reported. All of this happened. Now, if you might think I'm even making this up, when these are newspapers from the day after it happened, these huge, throughout the whole country, huge headlines, fake radio war uh, stirs terror of the United States. You know, listeners panic, taking war drama as fact. You know, it terrifies the nation. And you have, you know, this was the thing that happened that just you know, had enormous consequences. And you look at it and you say, how was it? How is it that a fictional story could have this kind of impact on people's lives? So that they picked up and they fled their homes. They literally, people emotionally responded so that they went into labor early, that, they, that people committed suicide all over a lie because it was a lie that they believed. Now, it may seem like a wild and extreme story, but is it something that is really that unusual? Is it possible that our culture could tell us and sell us a lie? That if it was repeated enough by people in positions of influence, that the culture would not only believe it, but then act if it's true and act in a way that is anywhere from panic to destructive? Is it possible that we can look at it and we shouldn't just say, well, those people in 1938, well, they were really gullible. And, well, no, they had the same human nature we did. We have the same vulnerabilities. Is it possible that we in the same way could be convinced of a lie and then act if it's true, even if it's to our own harm and destruction? So what we're going to see in our study of these, passage, these verses in Ephesians 6 this, this morning is that we are in the spiritual battle. That's what Paul is talking about here. But the battle that we're in is a battle where Satan doesn't attack through physical weapons. It isn't a physical battle. He attacks through spiritual weapons, and the number one weapon that he uses is lies. That he lies to us, and when we believe his lies, the result is incredibly damaging. Now, last Sunday, we began looking at this section, and we saw that it's talking about, again, spiritual warfare, this armor of God, and Paul begins the section, if you have your Bibles, in verse 10 with this challenge. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. He's saying we need to realize that we're in the spiritual war, and in this we have an enemy that's totally committed to our destruction. 
You know, the Christian life isn't gonna be easy. We're never gonna get to the point where we arrive and we just coast. No, there will always be a struggle that comes. And, and part of that is even realizing if we understand the struggle, it actually makes it easier. If we're blind to it, we become vulnerable to the attack. When we realize it, that we're prepared, it makes it easier. And so God calls us to be men and women who are prepared for the struggle, that seek to be strong in the Lord. But that's the overarching command, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. But how are we to do that? Well, that's what the, the, the next verses explain. Look at verse 11. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. We find God's strength by putting on the armor of God. That's what it means to find our strength in the Lord. The weapons of this armor are the means by which he gives us his strength. And when he calls us to put on the full armor of God, he then starts to explain it, not just in this uniform, but the pieces that make up that armor. Most people agree that Paul wrote this from prison, that he was actually in prison while he was writing this letter, and, and therefore he would have had a Roman guard that was either with him at all time or a significant amount of time. And so in a sense, as he's writing this, he's got this, this Roman guard in his full armor who's in a sense a live model, and he's looking at what he's wearing, and he's using that to describe these various pieces. And so he calls us to be aware of the battle. Don't, don't you know, let yourself be found defenseless. Put on the full armor. And then he, in a sense, repeats it in verse 13. Therefore, take up the full armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day and having done all to stand. It's a command, but with a promise. Because if we do this, the result is we will be able to withstand the evil day that we will stand firm, that if we take the armor, we will have the strength that we need to be victorious. But it's the armor of God. It's not just our own armor. It's not our own strength. It's not our own ability. It means that we have to realize that we put on something that we don't have of ourselves that God gives, us, gives to us. You see, we face an enemy that is more powerful than we are. But again, we have the promise of 1 John 4, that for he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. Yes, the enemy is greater, but Christ is in us and he is greater than he is in the world. And as we tap into that power, as we tap into that army, we have promise of victory. So how do we do that? Well, he starts to describe not only armor in general terms, but specific terms. And he goes through the specific pieces. And the first piece we have in verse 14, stand therefore having fastened on the belt of truth. We start with the essential armor of the belt of truth. Now, I don't know, there might be some of you who are like me who read this, and then we step back and we think about what it's saying, and you might be a little confused at first. Why? Because, I mean, here you have Paul, and he gives this incredible introduction to this reality that we're in this spiritual battle, that we have sat satanic powers that are organized against us, powers that will destroy us if we don't rely on God's strength, and he calls us to prepare for the battle by taking up this armor that God gives us that will help us tap into the strength. And, and then he looks at the soldier that's guarding him and he's like, okay, where do I start? And he says, okay, the first piece that you have to put on is your belt. And I'm thinking, my belt, that's my belt, I, if that's what you're gonna start with? I mean, I've, I've been wearing a belt my whole life and I've never thought of it as a piece of armor. I mean, it's a fashion accessory, yeah, and, 
you know, I guess if I'm going at a fight, if my pants are kind of falling down, maybe that would hurt me. But, but armor? I've never thought of that. And not only that, I mean, how many of you are wearing a belt? And how many of you put on your belt first? No, that's what we put on last, not first. And he says, start with your belt. That doesn't make sense. And here's what we have to realize, is that in this, not only this passage, but in several of these pieces of armor, we're going to run into a problem, and specifically that when Paul mentions the piece of armor, we will think of a modern piece of clothing that shares the same name. But the modern piece of clothing isn't necessarily the same thing as the piece of armor. The piece of armor was something specifically designed for the Roman you know, soldier. It had a very specific design and a unique purpose. And so we have to resist that temptation to, to, to think only in the limitations of our expectations of what that word means. So let's think about this. Okay, what was the Roman belt? It was far more than just a fashion accessory or just, you know, hold his pants up and he actually didn't even have a pants. They had a tunic, and so it would have been a, you know, kind of a short skirt, and, and they would have put that on first. That was their main piece of clothing, and once they were dressed with that tunic, they would then put on the armor as the first piece of the, of the, of the uh, or the belt as the first piece of armor. Now, it was a heavy leather belt that would be strapped around your waist, kind of that middle section, made of heavy leather and have, uh, you know, pieces of metal that would be embedded within it. And it would also have heavy pieces of leather that would be hanging down, sometimes metal, but usually leather. But it would be heavy leather that would have metal, again, embedded into those leather strips. Now, sometimes we miss this because of the costumes that we often see people wear. So I think of even Joseph here, and he has this costume, and you would say, well, okay, is this the belt? And he's got these things hanging down. And they almost look like these little fashion assess you know, assessments that makes it look a little better. And, and that's what we think of but when you got to realize, okay, that's not at all what the belt was. And here's a, a better, more modern re, uh, reproduction of a Roman belt. And I want to point out that, again, here you have this very heavy leather with metal throughout. And, uh, and not only that, but you have these heavy leather strips, and there's metal throughout these strips. And basically, it would cover everything from your middle section down through your thighs for the, for the soldier. Now, here's what you've got to realize. This was protection. This was not just, you know, the belt that, you know, held things up. It was actually protection. So this whole section and, you know, down from your belly button, basically down through your thighs, if you would have a, a sword thrash, you know, basically the belt would just disturb that. That's why you have the metal that is in here as well. It was protection. Now, that's one of the purposes of the belt. We're going to come back to that in a few minutes. Let's now go to the second purpose. And it's why they put the belt on first. You see, they would put the belt on first because it, in a sense, became the foundation for all the other pieces of armor. So you'd put the belt on, and then you would put the breastplate. And you would put the breastplate over you, but then you would tie the breastplate to the belt. And so the breastplate wouldn't flop around because it was tied down to the belt. It gave it the security it needed. And then you would take your, your sword, and your sword it had the scabbard there on the belt, and the sword would be in the scabbard. So in a sense, you couldn't put on the other pieces of armor until you first of all had put on the belt. And likewise, if you didn't have the belt fixed tightly, all the other pieces of armor would hang ineffectively. So you have to start with the belt. It's the, it's the first piece. Now, here's what he's saying, is that like the soldier's belt, God's truth is the foundational piece of armor for, for all the armor. 
when we have to think about this and we think about God's armor, it starts with this belt of truth, God's absolute truth. And this absolute truth is, again, foundational. Now, we have to start by, in a sense, saying that there is such thing as absolute truth, that God's word speaks absolute truth in our lives. That means, when I say absolute, that means that it's always true for all people for all times. It's not just true for, you know, well, this was true way back then, and this was true 2,000 years ago, and culture has changed. No, absolute truth means it never changes. So all people, all time, all cultures, it's always true. It's not just true when we like it, when we agree with it, it's true even when we don't. Now, here's the key. If it's absolute truth, that means we don't get to judge it. A lot of times we'll come to the Bible and we'll say, well, you know, culture's changed. It really isn't relevant for us today. We need to understand the culture. Or, well, I don't really agree with that. It doesn't really fit. And when we're doing that, what we're saying is, I am the absolute. I am the one that reads the Bible, and I get to judge it, whether it applies to me, whether it applies to the culture. I am taking a position of absolute authority over the Bible. Now, when we look look at God's word as absolute truth, what we're saying is, it is absolute. It has the position of authority over me. It has a position of authority over our culture. So when we disagree, it's correcting me. It's correcting the culture. Now, in that, what we're seeing is that if you understand that, that's why it's foundational to everything else. Because all the pieces of armor grow from God's teaching about what the pieces are talking about. So, for example, we're going to see next week we start talking about the breastplate of righteousness. What it's saying, if you want to understand your standing before God, your righteousness, don't, it's not about what you feel or what other people tell you, what someone told you in the past. No, it's what does God's word say? And you've got to let that truth define, define what you believe about yourself. That is the, the you know, the belt of truth is what defines righteousness or shoes of peace or, or peace or helmet of salvation, all those things. What does God's word say? And that is the foundation of ultimate truth. See, armor isn't what we feel or what we think about an issue. It's what God's word says about the issue. Now, in a sense, when we look at this, we say, you know, how do we, how do we hold this? What well, starts again with the agreement that there is such thing as absolute truth. And even when I say that, I realize that, that for some here, I know for many in the culture, just the claim of absolute truth is something that is, you know, maybe troubling, even offensive. Because when I say that something is absolute and it's true for all people at all times, what that implies is that, that if you believe something other than that, you're wrong. See, our, our, our culture undermines this foundation of truth because we don't believe in absolute truth. Everything is relative, especially when it comes to issues of morality, especially when it comes to issues of religion. So how often do we hear people, well, that's what you believe about God. This is what I believe about God. That's what you believe about that moral issue. This is what I believe. And if I come back and I say, well, no, actually, this is true about God, and absolute truth means if you believe something else, then you're wrong. How dare you? How arrogant can you be? How can you say that your truth is better than my truth? And that's offensive. Now, here's the main answer. I'm not saying that my truth is better than your truth. I'm saying that God's truth is better than your truth and my truth. And so any of us, when we come and we look at God's word and God says something about himself, about morality, about any kind of truth, and it disagrees with any of us, then it's all of our job to say, because that's the absolute, it corrects us. And so, yes, if God says, you know, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus Christ is God. If you believe anything else, you're wrong. 
And I say that in grace and love. That's not judgmentalism. That's saying you're wrong and you need to align yourself with the truth because anything other than the truth will always lead to brokenness. See, when we look at this, that totally, you know, our culture disagrees with that. Our culture looks at it and says, well, no, everything is relative. It's here's what I think and here's what, you know, and even, you know, education, well, here's what we know, and, and education is all about relative truth. In fact, I've, I ran across a little video that I think illustrates this in a really simple and humorous way. Uh, watch it, and I think you'll get the point. This is a red balloon. It's true, it's red, we all know our colors. The absolute truth is that this balloon is red. No, it's not, that's green. What? This right here is a green balloon. That is the prettiest yellow balloon. <laughs> yellow? This is red. Yeah, come over here. No, it's green. It's red! Yeah, I know, it's a red balloon. Hey, will you look at it from my point of view, please? What? Hey, nice blue balloon. Blue. It's green! Green? It's red! What? Why are you saying it's red when it's blue? Huh? It's what? totally purple from here! Purple? Okay, you know what? Let's just settle this once and for all, okay? Where are you going? Hey, what color is this balloon? I only see in black and white. Hey, Mark, what color? There is no balloon. This is ridiculous. Hey, I know what the problem is. Look, um, my mom taught me that this was blue. But, um, you know, then she said this is red and green, yellow, you know, and on and on. <laughs> okay, I get that your mom taught you that that was blue, but I mean, that's not the truth. Whoa, why are you talking bad about his mom? Yeah. I'm not. Listen, I respect your mother. Thank you. And the way she raised you. She taught you that was blue. Our moms taught us that it was red. That's the way it goes. I thought you said it was green. It is green. See, I'm smart. I went to college. And in college, I learned all these different theories about color. Really? And my color professors who have doctorates in color, do you have a doctorate in color? Uh, no. It shows. Okay. <laughs> they can't even agree on one theory of color, so you have to look at all the different theories and pick which one works best for you. And green is great for me. That makes sense. Thank you. No, you can't just pick whatever color fits your life the best. Red is red. Okay, do you know the word intolerant? Yeah. Because that's what you're being right now. All right, you're shoving your opinion down my throat. Okay, it's not my opinion, it's the truth. <laughs> hold on, hold on. All we're saying is that we need to stop arguing about trivial things like truth. You know, the funny thing about truth is, it's true, whether you believe it or not. You know, I love that little video because it takes something that is seemingly trivial, the color of a balloon, but we know that there's an objective fact. And if that's true about the color red, it's objective truth about morality. There's objective truth about religion, about God. There's objective truth about all the things that the Bible speaks on. And we've got to realize that in the middle of this, it's objectively true because it's, no matter what I think about it, it doesn't change the truth of it. And in the same way, no matter what our culture thinks about these issues, even if our culture, if everyone changes their perspective, if suddenly everybody turns and what was black is now white, and, and everybody agrees on that, the fact is it hasn't changed the objective truth. And God speaks that objective truth. And the more that our, that our culture, the more that our, that our own lives are out of line with that truth, the more broken we will be. The more that we find that truth and align ourselves, the healthier we will be. Now, we shouldn't be surprised that, that Satan attacks with these lies. Why? Because if you go all the way back to Genesis 3, where does the temptation start? It starts with a lie. Did God really say that you, you, know, that you eat the tree, you'll die? Well, you're not going to die. You can't trust God. He's actually holding something back from you. No, you're gonna, you know, your eyes are going to be open. Your life is going to be better. 
It starts with a lie. And then I think about in 2 Thessalonians where it talks about the end times and what Satan's going to do to the end times, and it ends with a lie. It continues, the coming of the lawless one will be uh, is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and to be saved. It's all about deception and getting people to refuse to love the truth, rejecting the truth. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that an all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in then righteousness. That's the problem. We believe, the, we believe what's false. We reject the truth. That's Satan's strategy against us from the very beginning. He's a liar from the very beginning. But it's, when we look at this, we've got to say, okay, that's the lie. But no, the truth is there's freedom. See, the lie is going to be just like in the first one, the first temptation. Did God really say, no, he's holding something back. If you eat this, your life's going to be better. It's always the lie. But the lie always promises benefits, but it always leads to brokenness. It always leads even to slavery. Paul's talking about a spiritual warfare here, and we need to realize in the middle of that spiritual warfare, oftentimes the very first and foremost fight that we have to engage in is taking back our minds from the captivity to lies and finding freedom through the weapon of truth. That's what Jesus talked about in John chapter 8 when he said, and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Jesus was speaking in the context and he had just told his followers, you know, if you, are, if you hold on to my teaching, then you are my disciples. And as a result, you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Now, the religious leaders, you know, they heard that and they were offended because it clearly implies that they currently were not free. They were enslaved and they, you know, rejected or objected to Jesus. How can you say that? And he came back and he said, no, it's not a matter of, you know, of economic slavery, but spiritual slavery. He said, everyone who is, is sins is a slave to sin. Why? Because we sin out of believing a lie. And he says, no, you've got to discover the truth. And yes, the truth says some things are wrong, but does that make us less free? No, when we understand the truth, it says things are wrong, and we realize that it's not only wrong, it's destructive, it's harmful to us. And we then have the freedom to choose what is right and what is healthy. See, that's even part of my job as a pastor. Look at what it says in 2 Timothy uh, chapter 2 about this, what a pastor is called to do. It says, you know, our job as a pastor is to correct his opponents with gentleness. God may perhaps grant them repentance leading to knowledge of the truth that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. Now, there's gentleness. I'm not confronting. I'm not beating people up. It's saying in gentleness that there is a lie, that God wants to call you to repentance, that you acknowledge his truth, that you come to your senses. But because Satan has enslaved us into the lie, and it's only in the freedom that we have in the truth that we discover true freedom. Now, this is one of the purposes of the belt, is it's the foundation. But you remember the other purpose that we talked about is it also is protection. If you remember even a picture, it's this belt, this heavy leather belt that would cover, cover the whole middle section and then reach down with these straps that would cover from the middle section, basically your belly button, down to, through your thighs. And so now here you say it's the belt of truth. Why? Because the gut, in a sense, is vulnerable to lies. And it's protection against the attack of lies. Now, we see it again, starting in Genesis 3, all throughout the Bible. Now, here's what you've got to realize. Why does it talk about the belt and the gut here? 
Now, here's one thing that helps us maybe go a little deeper on it from a cultural understanding. You see, when it talks about the gut, it's actually talking about the center of emotion. Now, that's hard for us to understand because when we talk in our culture, when we talk about the center of emotion, what you feel, we talk about our heart. Okay, so I love you with all my heart. I, you know, that's, that's, that's what we talk about. In that culture, they wouldn't talk about the heart being the center of the emotion. It would be the, the bowels. Now, we don't get this oftentimes because our translators, when they translate the English Bibles, they will take bowels and they'll often translate it heart or, or an, an emotion. Because if they translated it literally, it would make absolutely no sense to us. So, for example, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul speaks about, you know, speaking to the, uh, the people he's writing to, he says, God is my witness, how I yearn for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, literally translated, that's, how, for God is my witness, how I long for you from my bowels with the affection of Jesus Christ. Now, you read that, and you're like, what in the world does it, I mean, if, I, if it was a literal translation, word for word, it doesn't make sense. So, they translate the meaning. Let me give you one other passage, and there's many of these. Jeremiah 4, my anguish, my anguish, writhe in pain. Oh, the walls of my heart, my heart is beating wildly. Now, literally translated, this reads this way. My anguish, my anguish, writhe in pain. Oh, my bowels are disturbed. My bowels are growling. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone says my bowels are disturbed, that means something, <laughs> and it doesn't mean something emotional. My bowels are growling. That's, you know, that generally means something that means, you know, too many beans or something. I mean, it's just like, it has a meaning. And so when you look at that, clearly we have to change, the, you know, change the interpretation to get the idea. So ESV changes to heart. Now, I can even understand somewhat why our culture changes to heart. Because, you know, I can say, okay, I love my wife. I love you with all my heart. She gets that. And, and um, I love you with all my bowels. I tried that. It just didn't work real well. <laughs> You know, or I, you know, I want to, I want to send her a little note. I draw her a picture of my bowels uh, and give her that. You know, I send her an emoji of my bowels. I mean, that's just, it's, it's, that's not really romantic. And, and so, so I can understand why we changed the heart. It makes sense. But why is this significant? Because when you understand this, you understand that the belt is about protecting our emotions. And the lies that deal with our emotions, stronghold lies that, that shape our lives, it protects the vulnerability of our personality, how you feel about yourself, what you think about yourself, in, not only in your mind and your heart and your gut. See, we think of lies as a mental thing, what we think, but often the most dangerous lies aren't necessarily rooted in our thoughts, they're rooted in our emotions, in our heart, in our gut. And because we believe those lies at the gut level, Oftentimes, there is a gap between what we believe in our mind, what we know to be true, and what we practically believe in our behavior. So this is a challenge that's illustrated in James 1. It says, let him who asks, let him ask in faith without not doubting. For the one who doubts is like the wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all he does. So when you're asked, ask in faith. You know something, but at the same time, you're doubting. There's something that you know, and there's something that you have in your heart. And if your belief is based on your heart, you're double-minded. You're going back and forth because there's this gap between what you know and what you feel. See, it's our beliefs that shape our lives. And many times there are things that we may know to be true or are false, and yet they still shape our lives. 
Now, let me even illustrate that. You know, I came in about a month or so ago, and I came in the office, and there was a snake that was, had snuck in under the door and was in the middle of the hallway. You know, it's a little snake. It's, you know, just a little gardener snake. And I don't like snakes much at all. Uh, but I still, it's like, yeah, Todd's like, no, it was this big in his mind. And, you know, but I still, you know, got a paper a plastic bag to grab it and throw it out. And, and I mentioned it to Todd. And he's like, oh, man, if I walked in, I, I was quitting. I would quit at that moment. I resigned at that moment. He says, it's, you know, now he, he hates snakes. And talking to him, he's like, I can't even look at a picture of snake. I can't even, I can't even you see it on, you know, if I see it on a, on a TV show, I you know, walk out of the room. It's, it's visceral. Now, the fact is that I could intellectually tell him, this was a little gardener snake. It was tiny. It was harmless. And explain all that to him in his mind, and he knows it. Does that change what he believes, his behavior? No. Because his behavior isn't rooted in what he knows. It's what he believes in his gut, in his heart. Now, that's what we have to realize, is that for many of us, that's where our real beliefs are rooted on many things. It's not just what we think but it's what we feel and what we believe. And the lies, because the lies are at the gut level, Satan attacks us here, that's where we need the, you know, the, 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 um, the armor, because he lies to us in a, in a gut sense. And that we believe things that we kind of know that are false, but yet they're lies that shape our belief. And I could speak out to many things, and, and just, you know, because I've, over the years, talked to so many people. And examples of that, maybe your father told you that you failed, you know, he was disappointed in you, it never amount to much. And through your whole life, that's wormed into your heart and you've believed it ever since. And no matter what success that you've had, you still believe that. Or your mother told you that you were stupid and, and that's the reality that has shaped your life. Or you sinned and failed in some way in the past and, and you're now so ashamed of that that you haven't even shared that with some of the closest friends in your life. Because, oh yeah, you know that Jesus has forgiven you, but no, that's still, that failure, that shame so marks you. It's at the core of your identity. It tells you that you're dirty, that you're a failure. And you know you're forgiven, but you don't believe it. For some, there was someone that was important to you, something that was important to you that was threatened, and you went to God and you prayed with him, you pleaded with him to answer that prayer, and yet you, in spite of all the pleading, it wasn't answered the way that you expected him to. And your relationship with God has never been the same because now you believe that God isn't trustworthy, God isn't good, because he didn't do the things that you demanded of him at that time. How could you ever trust him again? And you have the right theology, but you don't really believe it at your gut. There's a lie that's rooted there. And that's, there are many other beliefs that we, if there are lies that we have. You know, some, you've been, you know, um, betrayed by someone in a close relationship in the past, a man that has abused you. Now no men could be trusted. A woman has betrayed you. Now no women. You can't have those relationships, and it's doing great harm even in your marriage if you're married that you have these incredible senses of guilt, that you've failed in some way, that, you, that you've, that you've uh, sinned in the past and you define yourself by that sin, that this is who I am. My friends, those are all lies of Satan. They are lies of the enemy. And it's not just quoting the right theology. And I said, well, I know this about me. You've got to recognize that they, there's a battle, there's a stronghold that you've got to look at it and say, it's not only this is something that's a little wrong. No, it's a lie of Satan. And you've got to not only call it out as something that's, that needs to be corrected, but something that needs to be warred against. 
that you've got to say, God, help me to be able to see that lie. Help me to reject it as, as literally from, you know, demonic in origin. And God, help me to believe the truth. Because we've got to call that out, and then we've got to fight against the lies with the truth. And what's that look like? Well, for start, it means start by committing yourself to the study of God's word. Not only to try to read it on a regular basis, but it might be, you know, finding that kind of coming to church, getting involved in a Bible study, listen to podcasts or sermons, and read a good book, be engaged in things that challenge you, and then let God's word confront you. Let it disagree with you. Let it offend you. And what it does, don't try to change it to make it more comfortable. No, let it offend you so that it changes you. And when you feel God exposing something, don't run away from it. No, run towards it. Now, it's going to be tempting to run away from it because you feel God exposing something that's painful, that's an infection that hurts. You buried that so long, you don't want to think about it. You, you, you might be ashamed if other people know. But friends, it's an infection that God's exposing. And yes, it will probably be more painful to dig it up. But if you keep it buried, it's an infection that will continue to infect your soul. It's a lie that will not be removed. And it's not until you dig it up and let it be exposed to the light of God's truth and go through the pain of that, that God can heal you. And when you're deep dealing with some of these deep-rooted spiritual lies, we have to realize that some of us, we have had things that have been so real for us for so long that we think they're normal. We don't even realize they're lies. And God's nugging, nudging at our heart, but we just can't get there. And that's what we need to realize that part of this process is often getting other people involved, finding close Christian friends, trustworthy friends, finding a Christian counselor, finding someone who could dig deep because we're all blind to our own blind spots. I have things, lies that I believe are true, and it's not until someone else can some, come and point it out and you say, I never saw that before. My friends, even as we say this, it's not like, okay, well, you might have a problem. If you're mature, you've got... No, all of us believe these lies. All of us deep down have things that we have to dig out, and that includes me. I mean, that's where, you know, I've shared before that Sandy and I went and we spent some time with a counselor a year ago. Why? Because we saw things that God was nudging at us that we didn't know how to dig out, and we said, we need to dig this out because it's, it's an infection that's hurting us. We need to go find somebody to help us deal with it. And by God's grace, that person helped expose some lies, and it helped us to fight those lies with the truth. Ultimately, when we look at this, it's a lie. It's not a matter of, you know, it's just not, that's not a small thing. It's a matter of a lie that enslaves us, that controls us. It's a stronghold that hinders us, that is hurting relationships. And God calls us to claim, not only point out the lie, but then to claim the truth, this truth, that we, when we know the truth, it will set us free. Now, my friends, just in close, let me challenge you to make this personal. Because it's easy to look at this whole issue of truth and, well, the truth is out there and the lie in the culture and I see it in somebody else. And the fact is, this is a battle for all, each one of us. God has not called us to proclaim the truth to the culture. He's called us to put on the belt of truth in our own lives because we are involved in this wrestle against flesh and blood, this struggle, this personal struggle, that he's attacking us, our gut, our heart, our feelings, our core beliefs, not only our thoughts, but what we believe. And if God's nudging at your heart, don't run away from it. Run towards it. And if God's exposing something, you know, get other people involved and say, I need, I need help through this. But you realize that we are in this battle and for so many of us, 
we have strongholds that Satan has placed in our life, false beliefs, false ideas, false beliefs about ourselves that keep us from knowing the freedom that God has called us to. And God calls us to be able to fight this battle, putting on this belt, and literally taking this on, not running away from it, taking it on, that we would know the truth that would make us free. And that is it for this week's message. If you have a question about the message, Community Church, or Jesus Christ, send us a text to 330-400-3242. You can learn more about our events and community groups online at ccpl.life connect. There, you can also send in a prayer request. We would love to pray for you. Have a blessed Lord's Day, and we'll see you next week.